All right, so how's the new year treating you? Yeah. So far, so good? Shouldn't be too bad yet. <coughs> it's, still, it's still early. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open up 1 Corinthians? We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning as we continue to go through the book. You got me, brother? Am I working? I don't know. You're in charge. I just do what you say. Now, as we continue to go through, as we take a look at 1 Corinthians, remember that 1 Corinthians is a book written by Paul to the church at Corinth that was dealing with issues. And the very cool thing for us, as we take a look at it, one of the important principles whenever we interpret the Word of God is that we interpret the Word of God in accordance with its context. And the context of the church at Corinth is very much like any church in the United States, for the most part. There are, are minor differences, but the major issues are still the major issues. In chapter 7, Paul's going to begin to deal with a specific question. A specific question about whether or not people who are single are a little bit weird. There's something wrong with them. I mean, there must be something wrong with them if they're still single, right? That was a, a, a prevalent ideal in the church of Corinth. The other issue that they had at the church of Corinth was this concept that they had grown up their entire lives in a, in a city, in a society that was rampant with sexual immorality. And that sexual immorality, we saw even in chapter 5, had come into the church. So Paul wants to deal with, with some of those issues. And the, the, the backswing of all that, as, as these are issues that they're dealing with, the people began to say, well then, that must all be bad. Sex is all bad, all kind of sex. So we're going to refrain from it all. And we're going to be celibate even though we're married. And Paul's going to deal with those things. They were having real life issues. Real life struggles. And as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's going to give us a fairly in-depth study on what marriage is and what marriage isn't. On what being single is and what being single isn't. And which one of those please the Lord more? Which one makes you more holy or more righteous? Because they were getting that ideal. Remember when we began the first four chapters, the major issue of that church was division. They would look at one another and try to find ways to elevate themselves above their neighbor. So the best way to elevate yourself is to grab the one standing next to you and pull him down. If you can pull him down, you're, you're higher, you're more holy, you're more righteous. So Paul's going to deal with these issues as we take a look at what he has for us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 begins, Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Now, Paul is answering specific questions. We can only surmise what the questions were based on the context of the chapter. He doesn't tell us, but he gives us a clue in that first line after, uh, Now, concerning the things of which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, when you get into the Greek on this phrase, it's very literal, talking about uh, it's, it is good for man to be single. It makes us think that the question that was asked was, hey, is it okay? Because, listen, Roman and Jewish tradition said that if you were not married, you were not providing a family and children, it was the same as being a murderer. The Jews were even more harsh in terms of what happened if someone was single. So the church is asking Paul, hey, is, is this really the case? What's the, what's the deal? And Paul says, it is good. It's okay. Now we know it's good to be married, right? The Bible tells us that it's not good for man to be alone. So God said in Genesis chapter 2, I'll make a helper that completes him. That, that together they become better for being together. So it's good to be married. Paul is laying out for us. It's good to be single. It's okay. But it, the point is that you realize and recognize you have to be who you're called to be and not want what someone else is or what someone else has. And that's kind of tough for us in America, isn't it? Go to any hairdresser's shop 
And there will be someone with straight hair making it curly. There will be someone with curly hair making it straight. Someone with long hair making it short. Someone with short hair making it long. Why? Because we are never content. We're never content with where God has us and, and who we are. And that's just a minor thing that we can look at. But the reality is there are married people who long to be single. And there are single people who long to be married. And Paul's going to tell us, listen, we need to learn to be content where we are. Not always looking for the next thing. How many of us have ever said, if I could just have that thing, I I would finally be happy? Have you ever got it? I got it once. It, It didn't make me any happier. I told Kathy, I was riding around on a... Uh, Kawasaki, pretty nice Kawasaki. I said, man, hon, if I could just get a Harley, I would be so happy. And I got this Harley, got my dream Harley. Big old eight hangers, and it was beautiful. I loved it. But I probably had that bike for, I don't know, a month before I came to Kathy and said, you know, babe, I need one just a little faster. Just, I need, I need to change this or that. Why? Because we struggle with contentment with where we are. We struggle with those issues of, of being satisfied. We need to learn to find our satiation in Christ Jesus. Because, folks, none of those other things satisfy. You get them, and you won't be satisfied. There's, there will be something else, something new, something better, something somebody else has. But when we find our satiation in Christ, when we're satisfied in Him, in what God has done for us, then we will learn what it is to be content. And Paul would write, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Learning to be content where I am. And satisfied where I am in Christ Jesus. That is to be our goal. So he lays out, first, it's not good, or, or it is good for man not to touch a woman. It's okay for guys to be single. But look what he says in verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Remember, I told you what the Corinth was like. Corinth was just like uh, any city in the United States. Sexual immorality was rampant. Divorce was rampant. People were were running around doing all the things that we see happening in our own nation today. Maybe even a little worse. Because in the middle of Corinth, on top of a mountain, was a temple to Aphrodite. And in the temple of Aphrodite, there were priestesses, prostitutes, that would sell their wares in order to raise money for the temple of Aphrodite. And the common thought of the day was, my wife... She is for raising my children, but pleasure, I go up on the mountain. Now you got to realize, that's the way they grew up. That was okay in the world that they were in. That was what that world had to offer them. And Satan tells us the same lies today. He tells us a lie today that pleasure somehow is a, is a, is a, somehow wasn't a gift from God, but it's a gift from Satan. And that's not true. And this is what Paul says. Listen, because of sexual immorality, that's the text. Because of the way the world is, you need to realize every man should have his own wife. And every woman her own husband. None of this running up the mountain to to seek pleasure in the world. Seek pleasure in some other place. But that we're to find that unity of purpose within our uh, husband or wife. So, we want to understand the context. First, it's okay if you're single, but listen, if you're struggling with sexual immorality, then you're not called to be single. You're struggling to be single. So, let the gift that God has given you be utilized in a proper manner between, in a relationship between a husband and a wife. That is where sexual relations find their greatest fulfillment in that place in the place god created in the place that god designed somehow we get the idea that god was in heaven and adam and eve were there on the ground and all of a sudden the lord looked down and said hey what are those guys doing down there 
hey, somebody go get the hose. We got to get those guys apart. <laughs> That's not it. That's all part of God's design. It's all part of God's design. And it is to be a part of a marriage relationship. And so as Paul lays this concept out for us, he wants us to be considering these issues. Look what he says in verse 3. So he goes on. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now primarily he's still talking about sexual relations between a husband and a wife. But there's more to it than that. We need to realize, men, we are required to give our lives the affection that she is due. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to love our wives, how? Like Christ loved a church and gave himself for it. So we are called to give ourselves to love our wives. Now, for the first, well, ever since Kathy and I have been married... I struggle with this. I struggle with this because it, the way that I grew up and the way that we express love in my family was different than the way Kathy grew up and how she expressed love. In English, when we say love, that it's, it's kind of a, a word with no meaning, isn't it? Just a word. What's the action to that word? What must you do to love your wife? Man, you may fall into a trap and think, well, I'm doing what was loving at my home. I'm doing what was loving in my family, and, and so she should learn to find that loving. Oh, wait, back up. What is it that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself. He died for her. We men are to die for our wives. That means that my responsibility is to meet her need for affection. It's my responsibility. Kathy and I read a, a book was really good for our marriage. It's called uh, The Five Love Languages. And what I discovered in that book, and as we studied through the Song of Solomon and other places in the scripture to, to teach us what love is all about, especially within a marriage relationship, I discovered that my wife needs words of affirmation. That is what is loving to her. What's loving to me is that you do something for me. But that has no bearing on me giving to my wife the affection due her. I'm supposed to give her what she needs. But that's not the only part of the verse, right? I'm supposed to give her what she needs and she is to what? Do the same for the husband. That the wife would meet the primary need within her husband. Well, folks, if you think that that magically occurs on the day that you stand in front of an altar and say, I do, you have no clue at all. God doesn't zap you with lightning from heaven and poof, suddenly you understand everything about one another. You don't. And the problem in most marriages is we make assumptions and we say, well, this is how it is for me and she's human and so am I, so therefore it must be the same for her. That's not how it works. So how do we find those things? We talk. We sit down and we share with one another, hey, you know what? This is my primary need for, for my wife to fulfill in me. And she would share with me, this is my primary need for you. And when I know, I can fulfill it. I can meet it. I am to give her, render unto her, the affection that she is due. And the same, her to me. Now ladies, in case you didn't know, there is no such thing as osmosis in marriage. And I don't care what Oprah or Dr. Phil or any of them morons have to say about it. They, the reality is this. If you want your spouse to meet a need in your life, you must tell them what it is. And they will then be able, they'll be armed with knowledge so that they can meet that need. Because God's Word, guys, tells us that one of the keys to having this solid, godly marriage in a world rampant with sexual immorality, 
is that you share with one another and you give to one another the affection that they're due. Paul lays it out for us in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, a primary need for a woman is to receive love. And the primary need for a man is that he would be respected. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Women are to submit. That word to submit means provide a respond. Respond to your husband. What's it talking about? That response? He defines it in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 30. See that every man loves his wife as his own body. And see that every woman what? Respects her husband. Primary needs. If we learn to break that down for one another, we can unite our marriage like it has never been. If we assume someday they're going to figure it out, you could be in for a long, difficult road. We got to learn to share. We got to learn to talk. We got to learn to lay these things out for one another. Now, in chapter, or in verse four, he's still building on this idea. Now, you meet, or you, you meet that primary need, husbands for your wives. You meet that primary need, wives for your husbands. And then in verse four, he says, now the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, again, he's talking in a sexual sense that there is to be a, a, a sexual relationship within marriage. It's part of what marriage is. I told you, the church at Corinth, they were making this, this swing. They were hearing all this stuff about what was wrong and, and how sexual immorality was rampant and, and that that is sin. And they were swinging so far in the other way, they were trying to say, we're going to be together and we're going to be married, but we're more holy if we don't do that. We're more righteous if we don't have sex with one another. We're, we're, our relationship will be, will be better. And Paul is saying, listen, that's not how it is. That's not what it's about. And it's also not about selfishness. Look what he lays out. Man doesn't have authority over his body. The woman doesn't have authority over her body. So that, what that means is that a man and a woman have to come together. It can't be all selfish. It can't be all one way or the other. It should be united. Listen, folks, if I meet my wife's primary need, she meets my primary need, I am fulfilling her needs in relation to our sexual relationship, and she is fulfilling mine, what, what are we fighting about? Probably not too much. When your relationship is clicking that way, all the other stuff stays on the outside, right? The problem is when your marriage relationship is not like that, when it doesn't have that solid footing, then every little outside issue becomes a big issue. Every little oh, difficulty with a bill or financial issues or, or things breaking down, those can become this, this outside influence because the inner workings of our marriage is breaking up. We need to realize God lays it out for us. It's, we're reading the Bible today, right? And so this is what God has. This is what God is directing. This is what God is desiring. Verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. A period of time. Not forever, just a period of time. That you may give yourself to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, twice in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 19, God called the people because something so important was happening. He said, listen, I want you to refrain from all of these things and just focus on me. But it was just for a period of time. That wasn't how it was supposed to be forever because that is a necessary part of a relationship between a husband and a wife. Period. And this is what Paul is laying out. He's laying this out. But then he goes on to say, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. He's saying, listen, you don't have to be married. You just have to be married if you want to have a sexual relationship. That's what he's laying out. 
Hey, if you are going, if this is a, a direction that your life is taking, then it should be within the guidelines that God lays out and the guidelines of a marriage between a man and a woman. And in that realm, it's all good. The Bible lays out for us in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that marriage is honorable among all and the wedding bed is undefiled. It is to be a part of that relationship. But listen, he's going to go on. But he says in verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has what? His own gift. Paul says, I wish everyone was like me. Now we know at this point in Paul's life, he was single. Now we can make all kind of speculation that he was married. Uh, There was a requirement later on at a later date than the time in which Paul lived for a member of the Sanhedrin to be married in order to be in the Sanhedrin. That may have been in existence when Paul uh, was a member of the Sanhedrin. Maybe it wasn't. The point is, right now he was single and he says, I wish that you were all like me. I wish that, that you were single. But look what he lays out. Look what he tells them. But he says, each one has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. See, the people were starting to say, well, we're married, so we're more spiritual than the single people. The single people were saying, no, we're single, so we're more holy than you. And there was this division. And he's saying, listen, each one has their own gift. If you're called to be single, praise God, you're called to be single. It's okay. If you're called to be married, praise God, you're called to be married. It's okay. These are some of the guidelines that we should utilize within that relationship. But it shouldn't be a means for tearing down one another. And that's what they were using it for. And the reality is, we can do the same thing today. Don't look at this and think, oh yeah, them crazy people in Corinth. We would never do that. Because we would never say, did you hear? So and so still single. What's wrong with them? I don't know. We would never do anything like that, right? We would never look at someone and say, oh, you know, they never got married. Oh, you know what that means. No, I don't know what that means. Yeah. (laughs) And there's nothing I can add to that. (laughs) So scripture goes on. Let's take a look. Each one has that gift. Now look at verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. To the unmarried and to the widows. And when we look at this, it seems somewhat redundant to me. Obviously, a widow is unmarried. Just as a widower is. Why does he say to the unmarried and to the, and to the widow? And when you get in a little bit deeper into to what he is saying, he, when he says unmarried, he's talking about those who were made unmarried. When he talks about the unmarried, he's talking about those who have been divorced, who at one time were married, but now are not married. He says, listen, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. It is not a sin not to be married. It's not a sin to be single. He's saying, listen, it's good. It's okay. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Folks, here's a problem with commanded celibacy. If you have a gift of celibacy, then it's not going to be this kind of struggle for you. But if you are called of God to be married and you force yourself to be celibate, to somehow please God because you're denying your, your body, you're denying your flesh, and you think that's going to make you more righteous, then we end up with all this crazy junk that we have going on in the world with people who are trying to be what they're not called to be. And so they fall into sexual sin. The devil uses it as an opportunity to go in and turn the screws and and try to ruin people's lives, ruin people's witness. Because you're trying to be something you're not called to be. So what he's laying out for us here is, listen, you got to realize 
Each one of us has a gift. Each one of us has a calling. And we're expected to walk in that calling. But because of a lack of contentment, we look at someone else and we say, I want that calling. I want that gifting. I want to be like that. And it may not be where we're supposed to walk. How is it that you're supposed to find your calling? Well, you find your calling with your relationship with Jesus Christ. You find it in Him. You find it as you study His Word. You find it as you pray and as you worship and as you draw near to God. And God will speak to your heart and guide you and direct you in a way that will enable you to find, meet, and walk the calling God's given you. If you sit around like some husbands and wives and wait for osmosis to take place, it's not going to happen. God is not going to zap you from heaven and poof, I know my calling now and I never picked up a Bible, I never prayed, I never was in worship, I never brought myself before the Lord. That's not how it works. We present ourselves to God. We study His Word. We allow His Word to permeate in our lives. We allow His Word to guide us. In prayer, the Spirit of God speaks to us. In worship, the Spirit of God speaks to us. And we find our place. And we have to learn to be content in the place that we find. That we fulfill that role that God is calling us to. But listen, He goes on and says in verse 10, Now to the Mary... To the married, I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. The word is karidso. It means to depart or divorce. We're going to see, he says now, I, not the Lord. You're going to see that phrase occasionally from Paul. What does it mean? It means that somewhere in the scriptures, God has already taught about this. Malachi chapter 2. God says, I hate divorce. Jesus in the Gospels taught on marriage, didn't he? Jesus in the Gospels taught about a man and a woman should not be divorced. But Jesus gave us more clarification. What did he say? Except in a, in a sense of sexual immorality, unfaithfulness. But that's not a command. If someone is unfaithful, you must be divorced. It is a situation that if you're not going to be able to overcome it, then... God's given you an out, and you can be divorced. So when he says, I, not I, but the Lord says, he's saying this is already talked about in the Scriptures. When he says, now I say, not the Lord, he's saying God hasn't taught on this, but Jesus Christ has revealed it through me, and now I'm sharing it with you. He's not saying, this isn't Scripture, it's just my opinion. For All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And what Paul teaches us is profitable. It's to be applied. It's to be a part. So, as he says this, Now, to the married I command, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. A theomai. Again, another word for divorce. He's saying this is not how it's supposed to be. And if it is, if this is what happens, he's laying out the godly principle. Folks, before you put yourself under a bunch of condemnation, listen. You are responsible for what you understand of God's word. Now you understand. Where you are now, we move forward. Paul would say, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus. I take the word that I see, I say, well, I didn't do that, maybe that doesn't, I I made a mistake, I messed up, I sinned, I fell, whatever. Where am I now, where am I going? Where are you going? We move forward. Well, I was divorced and, and I got remarried and the word says I should remain unmarried or that I should be reconciled to my husband and, and those things haven't happened or maybe I got remarried. What do I do now? Where, where do I go now? You move forward toward Jesus Christ. You move forward. Can't live in what I mess up or what I've done wrong or, or, or the things that I don't understand or don't realize or recognize. 
I want to move forward. Now, who's he talking about here? He's not talking about, I'll tell you who he's not talking about. He's not talking about a divorce between an unbeliever and a believer. He's talking about Christians who were married, who broke God's word and were divorced. He's saying, listen, this is what God's definition of divorce is. Now, we might say, but that's not my definition of divorce. Well, I'm sorry. God makes the definitions. This is what the Lord is laying out. This is what God is laying out. In a godly divorce, this is what he's talking about. This is, is what, if there is such a thing as a godly divorce, that this is what is supposed to take place. Listen, this is what it is supposed to be like. Why? Well, turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, so it's easy to find. You get to Matthew, turn left. Now, Malachi laying out a, a, a prophecy uh, to the nation of Israel, he says in verse 13 of chapter 2. Now, this is the second thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. And you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What is it that God's saying? He's saying, specifically he's talking to the men of Israel at this time, who would divorce their wives for whatever reason. Whatever was going on, she burnt the toast, she's out. Whatever. And in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 24, I think, Moses gave the children of Israel a writ of divorce because of the hardness of their heart. But Jesus taught that wasn't how it was meant to be. When we stand up and we take the vows that we take in marriage, what do we say? Till death do us part. Not till debt. We do not say in the vows that, that we will stay together for our whole life. Or we do say that we'll stay together for our whole life. Not for only as long as I feel love. In our culture today, we make a marriage relationship all about feelings. And as soon as it becomes all about feelings, it begins to fall apart. Since uh, 1920s in the United States, divorce is up. 700 percent but it's not going to go down it's only going to increase because folks are selfish and they want to do what they want to do and god says that they cover my altar with tears now i'm not going to speak for anybody else i'll just speak for myself i grew up in a divorced family i grew up in a, and, and many of us probably did too and what happens in that relationship? Every happy day is sad. Why? Because that's the way mom and dad decide to make it. Because every birthday, I'm with one or the other. Or, or every Christmas or every all, whatever situation I might find myself in. Very seldom that, that mom and dad after divorce all get together for a happy day for the kids to enjoy having them both in the same place. God says you cover my altar with tears. Now listen, I'm not saying this because, hey, many of us find ourselves in that situation or we've gone through that in the past. What can I do about that? I can't do nothing about it. What can I do about it now? I got to move forward. I got to move forward. I'm not living in the past and my failures. I got to move forward. But it's important that we realize God says, hey, I'm not about this. He says in verse, uh, in verse 15 of Malachi chapter 2, as he goes on, he says, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. He's saying, I made him one. You can tear yourselves apart, but nobody gets out of marriage clean. Nobody dissolves a marriage and there's just smooth little line between where husband and wife was. You leave pieces behind. 
and you take pieces with you. It's not a clean division, it's a tearing. And God in his plan for marriage is that marriage will be forever. That a husband and wife would grow up with God at the relationship. If you would view a a right marriage like this, a triangle. At the bottom of the corners of the base of the triangle is a man and a woman. At the top of the triangle is God. You want to get closer to your wife? You know what you have to do. Follow the triangle. What happens? I move closer to God. I get closer together. That's how it works. That's how it was meant to work. But, alas, we live in a fallen world, don't we? But it is important that we see, for those of you who are not yet married, and you're sitting there going, I don't know what I even come today for. He's been talking about marriage the whole time. Well, listen, if you're ever going to get married, realize what God's Word says. It says, I hate divorce. So don't go into it with stars all around your eyes. I get the same phrase from everybody who ever comes in for premarital counseling. So why are you guys getting married? We love each other. Define that. Write it down and turn it in. Oh, guess what? They're not the same. You guys better talk about this. Now, I'm not saying you better talk about marriage. I'm saying you better talk about those needs with one another why because in our world today in the church 50 percent of marriages fail that's a big number folks that's a big number god says he hates it verse 16 of malachi chapter 2 for the lord god of israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garments with violence therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously Now, folks, God is talking to people before it's taken place. If you read that and you hear what we're talking about in God's word today and you allow that to make you feel condemned, that's not the spirit of God. The spirit of God works in your heart to convict you. The enemy works in your heart to condemn you. But the Bible tells in in the book of Romans that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Him, in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. What is this? Instruction. What can I do with it? I can know where I've been and I can change where I'm going. That's the purpose. To change where we're going, where we're headed. Well, we come back. To, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we continue through the teaching that Paul has for us this morning, he goes on. Now, in verse 12, he says, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Okay, now, this does not mean this is not a commandment from God. We just talked about that. This means this was a revelation from God to Paul. He's sharing it to us. He's bringing it to us. God hasn't taught about this in the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't teach about it in the Gospels. So Paul says, the Lord hadn't said this, but I'm telling you, this is how it should be. If you're married to an unbeliever, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't divorce them because they're an unbeliever. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. What's he saying? Listen, sanctified doesn't mean saved. Sanctified means that there is a righteous presence in a family that brings God's blessing. For example, when Joseph was in slavery in Potiphar's house, because he was in Potiphar's house, wasn't Potiphar's house blessed? Was Potiphar's house blessed because Potiphar was such a great guy? No. It was blessed, sanctified by the presence of a godly man. The same is true in your marriage relationship. Look at it like this. You remember when the Lord came to Abraham and he said, Shall we not tell Abraham, he's our friend, what we're doing? when he was on his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Does everybody remember the story? And Abraham says to the Lord, Lord, if there are 50 people, will you destroy the city? What did God say? No. Is that because the city was so holy? 
It's because the city is sanctified by the 50 that believe. We look at our world today and we say our world is all sideways. Imagine a world without the sanctification that goes within the body of the church in the world today. We are salt. We are light. We are preservative in this world. Apart from that influence, there is no blessing of God upon the world. What happens when that influence is taken away? Judgment of God comes. As we take a look, that's what he's saying. In a marriage relationship, husband and wife, one's saved, one's not saved. They have children. God's saying, listen, because you are there, you are light to your husband, you are light to your child. They are sanctified by your godly example. And if they are willing, stay together. That means being married or unequally yoked with an unbeliever is not a a basis for divorce. If they are willing... If they are willing, you do whatever you can, because who, who knows what's going to take place? Does that mean I enter into a marriage relationship that way? No, he's talking about fellows that are already married, right? When, when, do you know that sometimes people get married and one of them gets saved and the other one didn't? Well, they need to stay in that relationship and be that godly example and watch what the Lord will do. That's what Paul's teaching. That's what Paul's bringing out. But listen, as he goes on. As he says in verse 15, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If they want to go, let them. You're not under obligation to make it happen when you're dealing with an unbelieving husband, unbelieving wife who wants to depart, who wants to leave. You're under no obligation for that. If they want to stay, fine. We'll try to make it work. But if not, let them go. Let them go. Now, folks would come through this teaching, and they would look at this, and they would begin to tell women that, hey, no matter what the relationship's like at home, you have to stay. The Bible says you're not allowed to go. Is that real? Does that mean that if there's violence in the home, if there's abuse, if there's all these situations, that we're only going to look at what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Folks, when we make policy, we make policy based on Genesis to Revelation. It's called the whole counsel of God's word. The whole counsel. So we don't want to pull something out of context and say, well, this means that's how I must be because that's what it said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm to take the whole counsel of God's word. The whole counsel. And the bottom line in all of that is, you lean upon the Lord and God will guide you. Does God love you? He loves you more than anybody else can. And God is going to use you and guide you and lead you in ways that are going to bring honor and glory to Him through you. Trust Him. And He'll lead. Trust Him. And He'll guide. But in these regular and normal situation this is what the guidelines that he's laying out for us that they bring sanctification into the relationship verse 16 for how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife but as god has distributed to each one as the lord has called each one so let him walk and so i ordain in all the churches don't look at your outs or your your insides and judge them by someone else's outsides. What do I mean? You look at your life and the and the things that you've done, and then you look at someone else, and it seems like wow, everything in their life is going along good. And man, why is everything so good for them, and everything everything's been so lousy for me? You're judging your insides by their outsides. Trust me, you don't know everything. You don't understand everything someone else has gone through or what their life has been like. Sufficient for you is to walk the path that God lays out before you. Where does my road take me? And am I headed toward Jesus Christ? Am I walking towards Him? That needs to be our focus and our goal 
Am I going toward the Lord? Am I drawing near unto Him? No matter where you are, married, unmarried, divorced, not divorced, single, doesn't make any difference. Are you walking toward Jesus Christ? Are you getting closer to Him every day? And what Paul is laying out for us is, if you're single, you don't have to desire to be married. It's not as though you have to be married in order to fulfill God's plan for your life. Or vice versa. You follow Jesus. And as you follow Jesus, you know what will happen one day? If you're supposed to be married, you'll look over to your left, and there will be standing a woman right beside you who is serving with you. And the Lord will say, that's the one. And you're there. You're there. And if the Lord never says that, great. Great. It's okay. God will bless. God will move. God is going to do his ultimate work. So as the Lord has called you, each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Here's the point. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. You see, that's what Paul's saying. We're getting all wrapped around the axle over all these different things in life. Now, I don't know what the letter looked like that Paul received, but I'm sure there was lots of questions. Just like we get lots of questions anytime we teach on marriage and divorce, well, what about this situation, and what about that situation? Here's the point. Where are you now? Where's Jesus? Are you going towards him? Go towards him. Trust him. Now you understand. Now you know that God has a plan in every aspect of your life. Move towards the Lord. Draw near unto him. Let God guide you, lead you, direct you. If you're struggling in your marriage, know that God's perfect plan for your marriage is that you're happy in it. If someone tells you God never means for you to be happy in marriage, they're a depressing person. Don't talk to them no more. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to enjoy the good fruits of a right marriage relationship. And if you apply God's word to your marriage and do what is necessary for your spouse, you're going to discover that that's what God has. And the same if you're single. Because married and single, neither one is anything. Circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. It's God. Where are you going? Are you drawing near the Lord? Are you coming near Him? Listen, he goes on in verse 20, and he says, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, then use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. For you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Are we slaves to popular opinion and what people say? What, what people say on this talk show or that talk show is right or wrong? You're a slave of men. You're not living in the fear of God. You're living as a man pleaser. Not a God pleaser. He's saying, don't be caught in that kind of slavery. He says, listen, he's not trying to say slavery is good or bad. He's just saying, if you were called, if you were saved while you were a slave, then great. If you can be free, awesome. If not, then use it. You have a a slave ministry. If you get saved in prison, what do they call that? Prison ministry. If you can be made free, so be it. If not, bloom where you were planted and that's the point that's the point of what he's getting to as we take a look he's going to say brethren in verse 24 let each one remain with god in the state in which he was called remain in that state not looking for something else not thinking something else is going to be the peace that satisfies my life There's only one thing that satisfies our life, and that is our relationship, a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Now listen, we talk about a lot of stuff today. We talk about divorce and and that God hates divorce, and we talk about how God calls people to live. Listen, don't lose the point. God says, wherever you are right now, stay in the place you are now, and let's move forward. 
the place where you are. Let's draw close to God. Let's move toward Him and learn that we are to bloom where we're planted. If I was to say, if I spend my whole life longing what I think will satisfy me in a different place, how many of you know that the grass is not greener on the other side? I figured it out. You know where the grass is greener? It's greener where you water it. So if you water the grass at home, grass will be green. If you spend all your time watering the grass in somebody else's yard, the grass is going to be green over there. We have to learn to water where we are. To realize that God has a plan and we can trust Him. And if I find myself through the choices in my life, I've been outside of that plan a variety of times. What's God say? Jackie, where are you now? Look where I am. Let's go. I can't move forward with the Lord if I'm looking back at all the mistakes I ever made. What does the Bible say? 1 John 1, 9. What am I supposed to do? If I'm found in sin, I'm to confess my sin. I say to the Lord, God, you're right. I'm wrong. This was sin. Forgive me. What's the Bible say that he'll do? He'll forgive. And his mercies are new how often? Every once in a while? Every morning. Every day. So how many times can I get a fresh start? Every day. So get a fresh start. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and run the race that is laid out before you, not someone else. Draw near unto the Lord and watch Him draw near to you. Amen? Amen. We have an opportunity this morning as we we close to, to partake in communion. And as we've been sharing this morning, as we've been looking at the, what the Scripture has for us today, we need to recognize, we need to hold on to the fact, listen, God has done great things for us. And God wants to do more. This is not the end. It's not the peak. There's more that the Lord has for us. So as we consider the implements of communion, as we consider that which the Lord has done, and as we can, we go ahead and have the, the worship team come on up and we'll prepare our hearts in worship to receive communion and to receive what the Lord has for us. Now we partake together of communion. What's the point? What's that all about? It's all about ingesting what God has for us and making it part of our life. That it's not just words on a page, but something that can guide and direct my life. That I can present myself to Him a living sacrifice. And I can come to the Lord's table, to communion. And I can remember that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because He did all things for me. He became my sacrifice. He washed away my sin. He makes me new. So allow your hearts to be prepared as we worship together. And then as we finish uh, the worship song, we'll partake together.